here this morning. Who is the smartest person in the world? Any ideas? Uh, you could make a case for, is my PowerPoint not up this morning? I not have PowerPoint this morning? Okay, I guess I don't. That's all right. There it is. All right. Hey, we're, we're cooking with peanut oil now. Smartest person in the world. You could make a case for Ken Jennings, right? The Jeopardy champion who, who won 74 consecutive matches, took home over $2.5 million. You can make a case for him. You might be tempted to nominate Sheldon Cooper, the renowned physicist from Big Bang Theory. True, he's super smart, but he's also a fictional character. Gary Kasparov is a name that's often brought up among super smart people. You might remember him. He's the famous Russian chess player who at the age of 22 became the undisputed chess champion of the world. Critics are, who are quick to point out, though, that later on he was actually beaten, not by a person, but by an IBM computer. So who gets your vote? If you find it hard to come up with a candidate for the world's smartest person, then a man by the name of Dr. Jason Betts can help you find out. He's developed the World Genius Directory, and you can find that online. And he argues that it is the definitive ranking of the world's top minds, the world's smartest people. Now, there are other sets that exist, but Dr. Betts claims that he's the only, he has the only list that is without bias. That anyone in the world who thinks he or she might make the list, they're able to submit their scores and get on the list. Now, according to Dr. Betts' World Genius Directory, the smartest person in the world is a man by the name of Dr. Evangelos. And I'm not working this morning. Okay. <laughs> Dr. Evangelos Katsulius. He's a 36-year-old Greek psychologist. His IQ is 198. Put that in perspective. Genius starts at 140. So he's 58 points above the beginning of the genius score. He's almost double the average IQ of the average human being. Our, our average IQ goes from about 90 to about 114, somewhere around there. 23 points higher than Ken Jennings from Jeopardy, who was 175. So take that, Jeopardy boy. You got beat on that one. The bottom line is that no matter how hard you rank them or whether or not you can name the smartest people in the world, there are some incredibly smart people out there. There always has been and always will be. If you're not already there, turn to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. At this particular moment in Mark's gospel, Jesus is in recruitment mode. And that means that he is actively out there seeking and drafting members of his team. A team that he knows will eventually be given this daunting task 
of igniting a spiritual movement that's going to spread around the globe and endure for millennia. Now, if you were developing this team, what kind of people would you pick? Who would you pick to be members of this elite team? If you were putting together a cohort of spiritual ninjas, wouldn't you choose the best and the smartest that you possibly could? Wouldn't you hit up the World Genius Directory, find out the biggest brain in Palestine, and put him in charge of logistics? Perhaps you might find the funniest person. And he would be somebody who would keep the tone light when ministry got kind of rough, got hard. You might also pick one of the strongest dudes around when ministry got dangerous. You know, that's how most of us would build our crew, right? We'd find the best and the greatest of all the different things that we needed. Instead, who does Jesus choose? He chooses the unqualified. Now, you might think it's a little harsh to label these guys as unqualified. Simon and Andrew, James and John. You might think it's a little harsh, but you know what? It's not. The details given to us by Mark make this point very clear. These are young men. Life expectancy in the first century here was very low and James and John are old enough right now to be established in a trade but still young enough to have their father in the boat with them that means that these are fairly young men aren't they in first century Palestine you know what the ideal career for most Hebrew young men was it was not taking over the family business. It was not being embedded in dad's business. It was being under the tutelage of a rabbi. That was the ideal occupation for a young Hebrew man. The brightest of boys, those who shined in Hebrew school and who stood out in their memorization of the Torah would upon completion of their tutelage underneath the rabbi would spend the next few years tagging along as a disciple of that rabbi. So to be a young man already embedded in the family trade, what do you think that meant? Means that on all likelihood you're not the cream of the crop of Hebrew school that basically you didn't have what it took to run with the rabbis. In modern terms, these were the leftovers. These were the kids who didn't get picked for kickball. These were unqualified men. Jesus didn't go around and cherry-pick the brightest kids from other rabbis to build his dream team. Instead, you know, People might think he might even take one of the shortest routes and let other people come to him, allow the best and the brightest to choose him. But what Jesus did, he went on a mission looking for leftovers. 
He went around looking for people that didn't fit in the normal Hebrew lifestyle. And he chose them instead. Why? Why would Jesus do this? Why would Jesus forsake the genius list and purposely pass on, though, pass on the brightest people available and focus on those who were at the bottom of the list, so to speak? The answer is pretty simple. Jesus chose simple and unaccomplished disciples. Because he wanted people following him so that the love of God and the work of the kingdom would be undeniably evident to the world around. In other words, he chose very simple, unschooled tradesmen to become living object lessons in the depths of God's love and the acceptance of God's power and his grace. These men were object lessons. No one now is going to be able to say that these men were privileged to be able to walk with Jesus because of their resumes. No one's going to be able to say that the growth of the kingdom was credited to the IQ of these men following him. You know what they're going to have to say now? It's all God. It's all God. Now turn over to Acts chapter 4. I want you to look at some post-resurrection events. And here we are with the same disciples, give or take a couple, okay? We're here with the same disciples... And given the keys to the mission by the resurrected Christ, these former fishermen are now boldly championing the expansion of God's kingdom. These men were even brought before the Jewish council, and you know what they did? They passionately and effectively proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Jewish leaders are blown away. They couldn't believe what they were seeing. They couldn't believe what they were hearing. Not just because of the content of their message, but because of the messengers themselves. Look at verse 13 in chapter 4. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men. You know, what is that saying? These are a bunch of dumb hicks. Uneducated common men. When they saw this, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus Christ. They could not attribute what they were saying to the men's IQ. They could not attribute it to their education, to their schooling. The only thing that they could attribute what they were saying to was the fact that they'd been with Jesus. The earth-shaking news of the gospel 
being delivered through such unexpected vessels elicited even greater awe of God and an even clearer vision of the power of Jesus Christ. Now here's a big question for you to think about. Why do you think God chose you? Think about it for just a minute. Why do you think God chose you? Yes, it's ultimately because God loves you and God wants to know you. But is there anything in you, is there anything about you that made God want to love you? Perhaps it was your IQ. Mom always said you were smart, right? Maybe it was your, was your sense of style. God thought you could make God look good. Maybe it was the fact that you're a type A go-getter. God wants high-functioning, action-oriented winners on his team, so he chose you, right? Did God call you to Christ through his word and draw you to the waters of baptism, making you as one of his own and placing upon you all of his promises that came through the cross because God saw something awesome in you. Well, I'm sorry to bust your bubble, but no. The answer is no. God called you to Christ for the same reason he called those original disciples. The same reason he called the twelve is the reason he called you. Because you make a great object lesson on the depths of God's grace and the scope of God's power. That's why he chose you. You with your rebellious heart. You with your secret struggles. You with your lack of faith and your long list of faults. You who knows deep down that you're unworthy to tie God's shoes let alone be called God's child. God chose you so that the world could look at you and see God's indescribably merciful and incredible power. That's why God chose you. That's why God chose me. With all that said, the question you might be asking at this point is, okay, so what? Yeah, we can proclaim the truth that God has chosen us completely out of mercy all day long, and we should. But what's the next step? What's the action step here? How does this truth get lived out in our lives? The answer here is to find out what the disciples did after they were called. What do you see them doing the moment after Jesus comes up and taps them on the shoulder and says, follow me? 
What do you see them doing when a rabbi comes and makes it clear that he wants them? They dropped everything. Everything. And followed. They dropped their nets, James and John, and even left their father. Why? Because when something comes along that you don't deserve, but you desperately want, and it comes knocking at your door, you don't say, just wait five minutes and I'll be right with you. You drop everything. And you take it. And you take it right now. You answer the door as fast as you can. Now, we're all disciples. We've all been given something that we desperately need. But don't deserve. We've all been given an encounter with Jesus Christ. And our task each day is to see this life with Jesus as an undeserved invitation. I don't deserve this life. I don't deserve this encounter with Jesus. It's an undeserved invitation to drop our plans. To drop everything that we have scheduled. To drop everything that we thought we needed to do. And to follow wherever he leads. Knowing that wherever he takes me, it's going to be better than what I had planned to begin with. So what now? What does that mean for me in my everyday life? What does that mean for all of us in our everyday life? Well, when Jesus calls you to tomorrow morning to love your annoying neighbor, see it as a gift of grace and a chance for God's power to shine through your weakness. Because after all, we're not the best at loving unlovable people, are we? Sometimes that's just not our forte. When Jesus calls us to invite a co-worker to church, it's a gift of grace and a chance for God's power to shine through our weakness. Since we're often not comfortable with that kind of thing. When Jesus calls us to follow him into illness or to endure a burden... This, too, is a gift of grace and a chance for God's power to shine through our weaknesses. Because it isn't easy to believe in God's goodness and the triumph of Christ when chemo is pumping through our veins, is it? Every day there is an opportunity, folks, as a disciple, for the world to watch in astonishment as ordinary, unschooled, undeserving people such as you and me live as examples of God's mercy and proof of God's grace. Folks, we are all object lessons, aren't we? All of us. We're all object lessons. Because when it comes down to it, God didn't have to choose us, but God has chosen us. 
God doesn't have to use us, but you know what? God uses us anyway. And the end result is not just blessing for us and for those whom God calls to serve. The end result is glory for God's name. That's the end result. So who's the smartest person in the world? Sure, the World Genius Directory claims to have an answer for you. It can give you the number one name of the world's smartest person, according to them. But that's only if you define smart as being able to uh, solve puzzles and get a particular IQ score. Maybe what makes one smart isn't your ability to give the right answer. Maybe what makes you smart is your ability to recognize a good thing when it comes your way. You know what? There are plenty of super, super smart people that have looked at Jesus and said, I pass. I don't know about you, but in my book, that doesn't make them very smart, does it? They're ranked as genius, and they say, well, sorry, I pass. I can't do that. I don't believe it. Don't understand it. It's not for me. But James and John didn't pass. Simon and Andrew didn't pass. They got picked, and then they gave up everything else. Sure, they might have been the leftovers. They might not have been the cream of the crop. They might not have been the smartest people as far as intelligent quotients and test scores and all this other stuff. But you know what? The decision to choose them was pure genius. And their decision to follow Jesus Christ made them some of the smartest people in the world because they made the choice. Object lessons. That's what they became. Object lessons. That's what you became when you became a Christian. Are you willing to become an object lesson this morning? If you're not a Christian here this morning, are you willing to make the smartest decision that you will ever make in your life? To become an object lesson for the grace and mercy and love of Jesus Christ and show the world how smart you are because of the choice that you made. Be smart this morning. Make the choice. Answer the invitation by coming and confessing Jesus Christ as Lord, repenting of your sins, and being baptized to have those sins washed away. And once that's done, you can rise to walk in a newness of life that is beyond anything that we can possibly describe or imagine. Object lesson. Praise God, I'm one. And praise God that you are too.
let's add some more object lessons to our family this morning. If you'll just come while we stand and sing. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my pardon, this I see. Nothing but the blood of Jesus For my cleansing, this my plea Nothing but the blood of Jesus Oh, precious is the flow That makes me white as snow But the blood of Jesus, nothing can for sin atone, nothing but the blood of Jesus, not of good that I have done, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Our closing will be number 76. <clears throat> number 76. First and fourth verses. Number 76. 